That's really important to understand. You have so much control over an additive process, especially around extrusion, that you can drastically change the behavior of a component just by changing two or three things, maybe one thing. There's a few things in the additive space that I just find so amazing. You know, when I talk to people, material suppliers specifically, a few noted that this is very similar to what injection molding was like back when it started to become more mainstream. It's the openness of the community. Hello and welcome to Talking Additive episode 22. In September 2020, Teton Simulation launched a unique FFF slicing optimization tool, Smart Slice for Cura, a plugin for Ultimaker Cura. With this tool, designers can assign safety requirements for loads for their parts, select performance materials right inside of Cura, and then use Teton Sim's patent pending technology to automatically assign slicing parameters that make it possible to reduce print time by 30 to 50% without sacrificing the functional requirements. As Teton Sim promises on their homepage, better parts printed faster and with less material. This week, we sit down with Doug Kinnick, the Vice President of Product at Teton Simulation, to talk about Teton Sim and their flagship product, Smart Slice for Cura. And through this discussion, cover Doug's background as a researcher into failure simulation with composite materials, his work as a product manager on generative design at Autodesk, and what he sees as the trajectory of FFF technology, bundled with the assistance of increasingly sophisticated automation software, such as Smart Slice for Cura. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 22nd episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. Our guest today is Doug Kinnock. Vice President of Product at Teton Simulation out of Laramie, Wyoming. Doug is a product manager and entrepreneur with an expertise in software as a service, bringing innovative technologies to market in highly competitive and undefined environments. And the interview with Doug Kinnick isn't all we have for you today. As always, at the end of the show, stick around after the theme music for our latest Ultimaker Innovator Spotlight bonus segment. This one features Tom Gray, CEO and co-founder of Make48, a U.S.-based organization that organizes 48-hour-long invention competitions that see inventors and designers create a prototype based on a given real-world challenge. Make48 is a documentary series aired on PBS as well. And now, without further delay, Talking Additive's interview with Teton Simulation VP of Product, Doug Kinnock. To kick things off, why don't you tell Talking Additive guests a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. I'm classically trained, I would call it, in finite element analysis of composite materials. I spent a lot of time working on 
what they called progressive failure analysis of composite materials, basically just how they break and how load redistributes in structures. And that actually led me into my uh, first career, which was at a company called Firehole Composites, um, which was actually a spin out of the University of Wyoming, based in Laramie, Wyoming. And we worked on progressive failure analysis of composites till 2013 had large companies, aerospace companies that were trying to solve these problems. That was during the time when aerospace was transitioning into lightweight materials, specifically around composites. Auto was trying to pick up a lot of that, which we'll talk about here in a sec around injection molding. But eventually uh, there was a company called Autodesk, which I'm sure a lot of the um, listeners are familiar with for Fusion 360 and, and other myriad of products. They acquired us in 2013 to really focus more on continuous fiber composites and also injection molding. And that's kind of how I started my foray into advanced materials. We'll touch probably on this a little bit later, but it's interesting how um, similar continuous fiber composites are to an FFF process, just because basically like you're laying down a single road of material. And if you think about it, that material has, if you pull on it in the direction that you're laying it down, it has different material properties than if you pull on it in the other direction where beads are touching each other. So that's like a continuous fiber composite, very similar. There's not like a continuous strand of composite in there, but as far as like how the material behaves, very similar. So Autodesk acquired us. And then I started working on how we link design and manufacturing specifically around injection molding. And this is where I really started to get into this whole problem of how a process influences a design because in the injection molding space you have things like fiber orientation and weld lines that are present from the manufacturing process itself and that actually influences how the part behaves when you put it in in service um, so this is a really big problem in the automotive space where you want to try to align the fibers with the load and you want to try to remove weld lines and get them away from the load so we were trying to solve this problem at Autodesk for a while. And I think we were fairly successful with it. It's a really hard problem to solve. And then eventually Autodesk asked if I would lead from a product management standpoint, some of the work to commercialize their generative design technology. And that was specifically geared towards additive, which was a ton of fun. We basically took a, a whole bunch of the technology from the office of the CTO. And we said, how are we going to move CAD from computer-aided design more into a computer-driven design where maybe a computer is more of a partner in the design? And that, that was such a fun problem to solve. And we ended up taking that to market in less than a year. So I had a whole bunch of contacts in the additive space for that. And we were really more focused on the metal side than the plastic side of it. But that's where I saw this whole idea, especially for extrusion processes of how process influences performance and the generative design technologies right now, there's not a lot that can really handle that, which is something that we're trying to solve here at Teton. And there's a huge future there as we continue to push FFF into what I would call more of like a structural and industrial space. So that that's kind of where I left off and I then joined Teton trying to solve, you know, the problems that we're going to be talking about today. Generative design and topology optimization just lends itself naturally to additive, specifically because of freedom 
of design, even though, I mean, as we all know, additive definitely has limitations, right? When you're talking about like things like overhang angles and minimum thicknesses and like hole sizes and stuff like that. So you have to tackle those kinds of things as well when you're talking about generative design. And that's really where my thinking started to specifically around extrusion and advanced materials diverge a little bit. Generative design is really good for like powder-based processes. But when we start talking about things that have a lot of different parameters for the process itself, like FFF, it just, it has a hard time capturing it because it doesn't understand how the product, how it's made. And that's really important, I think, to understand is you have so much control over an additive process, especially around extrusion, that you can drastically change the behavior of a component just by changing two or three things, maybe one thing. I said this a few times in previous lives, but there's also this idea of like generative manufacturing, I would call it, where why don't you allow your software or your computer to also help you understand how to make the component instead of what the topology should be? Because I, I think the topology is really interesting, but at the end of the day, there's also like you got to make it, right? And so what should the parameters be? This is true for injection molding. It's true for additive. It's true for composites, right? But it it should come in at some point and say, this is how I would suggest that you make this component. And that would be a true generative solution in my mind, especially linking the two. We've decided to tackle this problem. I would call it from the manufacturing side more than from the design side right now. The generative tools uh, out there in the past have, you know, maybe picked up on ways to help you create a topology that is is going to help you address the loads and be confident that you're going to meet the engineering properties mm -hmm. that you set out to. But then, if you have that topology and you don't have the route to produce it solved, then there's that whole other step of how to implement that. It seems like you've cut through that and you're actually solving as you're saying, the manufacturing question of how do you respond to those goals in exactly how you put the material down. I think it's really incredibly useful and interesting. And it helps eliminate a stage where a lot of people struggle. Okay, we have this design. We, we have we have decided through our analysis that, that this works. Now, how do we make it? Yeah, exactly. An additive is, it's still a fairly young industry. At, at when you take a step back and it's going through a huge transformation and it's been accelerated in the past couple of years there's this part of it where you sit down with your printer and you say okay what do i need to do to get what i wanted out the back end and that's a good problem to have because that means that you as a user have so much control over the situation and it's awesome. And these are things where like slicers come in, right? So OEMs and other companies, they've started building slicers to say, let's help you understand how you can make this component and what that means. And that's been tremendous, right? Now you can start tweaking things. You can understand what impacts what you get out on the back end. And we really just want to take that a step further. Let's automate it. Like that's really the end goal of it is tell us what you want out the back and we're going to help the slicer automate this process for you so that you get at the end of the day what you want. And maybe it's not the first time. Hopefully it's the first time. Maybe it's the second or third time. It's just making sure that users are successful. Talk about your journey from focused on advanced materials, advanced manufacturing processes to coming to explore 
FFF and this huge world of more accessible technology and, and, and approaching the problems there. Moving over into additive from, I would call it injection molding through that generative design process, that was, it was eye-opening is what I'll call it. There's a few things in the additive space that I just find so amazing. And, you know, when I talk to people, material suppliers specifically, a few noted that this is very similar to what injection molding was like back when it started to become more mainstream. It's the openness of the community. That was the, the largest eye opener for me was in general, material suppliers are so willing to work with you. OEMs are so willing to work with you. Eventually it's going to be about driving profit, but right now it's just how do we make this a viable solution for users and how do we drive value for users? That was, to me, that was such a great thing to, to jump into. There's never a no. In a lot of other things that I was working on around composites um, and injection molding, there's a lot of no's or that there's something already there, which is good, right? There's a whole bunch of revenue being driven from those kinds of applications. So I get it. But additive is very different. And I, I think open source software had something to do with this and hardware, which we'll definitely get into around Ultimaker. But it's also just that it's such a young industry and people are just, everyone's just walking around trying to figure out what is the path forward. And it's really just about sharing that journey. That was great. Moving into additive. I love that. And then FFF, what's so great about it is the barrier to entry is so low. That's what I really liked about it. It doesn't matter who you are. You can typically enter the FFF space and you can start dabbling and playing with it. I actually got started in FFF through Autodesk. Uh, they basically just gave us a printer when they acquired us and they just put it in our office and said, have fun. You guys are going to need to know about this eventually because Autodesk was heavily invested in additive manufacturing. So we started playing with it. I actually I started making drones because I was really interested in do-it-yourself drone applications. I would say that's when I first realized that I had no idea what I was doing with extrusion-based processes because I'd make the drone and I'd fly it and it, it would break every time. It wasn't stiff enough. It wasn't strong enough. The materials at the time were still, this was years ago, they were still pretty young. I remember putting a drone in the back of my car once and I came back 20 minutes later and it melted on the seat. I was like, I'll just go print a new one, which is amazing. But at the same time, you're like, why can't I get this thing to work? <laughs> so yeah, I'd call that the journey into FFF. And I, the most eye-opening thing to me was just the community. What problems were you looking to target when developing Smart Slice for Cura in specific? Originally, I would say it just started out as, I call it as printed behavior. When the part comes off the build plate, how does it perform? If I were going to push or pull on it or twist it, what's it going to do? Is it going to break? Is it going to move too much? Is it not going to move enough? Those are all open questions and they're very hard to answer unless you have a lot of knowledge printing, right? So that, that's the first thing that we wanted to answer for users is after you print it, and you put it in service, and let's call it an industrial application. It doesn't have to be an industrial application. Is it going to do what you think it's going to do or what's required of it? So that was one. And then we started looking at how many parameters influence as printed performance. And we thought to ourselves, it'd be really nice if we could automate this. If a user could tell us what they want it to do, and we could tell you 
how to tune your parameters or how to set your parameters in order to get it done correctly the first time. So I'd say that's those are the problems that we were trying to solve. To look at that first one, as printed behavior, this is one that comes up a lot where engineers want to really understand the results of what they're doing. And they're, they can subject the topology to analysis software, but typically the analysis software material packages will uh, treat it as a material with maybe the characteristics of the base polymer mm -hmm. and, and not as printed. And you look at the material sheets and you get a similar situation. So this seems like quite an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. There's software out there that, that can take these into account. Um, right. On, I would call it like a post slicer environment. But yeah, in general, when you're designing these types of extrusion based you know, models or geometries, you don't have an opportunity to understand quickly how it will behave after it's printed. Uh, a lot of people do just assume it's isotropic. And by isotropic, basically what you're saying is if I have a cube of material, it doesn't matter which direction I pull on it it will respond the same. So I'll pull on it a certain amount and then it'll return to that shape with the same amount of, we'll call it force or displacement, whatever that is. So you can imagine like a cube of steel, isotropic. But when you start printing things, let's say I printed a cube and I just oriented the raster in a certain direction and I printed that cube. You can pull on it in a direction, let's say you pull on a direction that you, that you printed it, and then you pull on it in the direction that you didn't print it, like the 90 degree direction. It doesn't behave the same. So if I pulled on it with 10 pounds in each direction, it will move differently. And so assuming that it's isotropic is, I'm not going to say it's a bad assumption. Like there's a whole bunch of engineering that gets done by doing that. But when you really want to get down into, let's say this thing can only displace five millimeters that assumption breaks down. So you, you need to understand, hey, if I print it this way, it behaves this way. And it's not intuitive at all. <laughs> I, I would say these challenges are coming up for, for our customers more and more lately with the rise in use for everything from manufacturing aids to other functional parts, that really the rise of function as being the main goal. In parallel with the arrival of all these composite materials to the space, so it's exciting that the two opportunities that are considered separate problem spaces to a lot of users, what material do I select and what are the properties you can get out of choosing that material and what are the slicing parameters and, and how do I tune to really get the function I'm intending, you bring those spaces together. Absolutely. You can basically virtually qualify a material, right? Because not, not all users have access to all materials, but if you virtually have access to materials, that opens up a lot of space for you right now. You can say, you can start doing what if scenarios. What if I had that material? That's really powerful because then you can qualify it and say, yeah, I have confidence in this material. I'm going to buy it because that's going to solve my problem. Same thing around slicing parameters. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about as additive becomes more and more ingrained, especially extrusion based into these industrial processes where load and structure is starting to come to the forefront. You had a Yob, I think, was on episode 13 from Eric's. Yep. And he mentioned that, and that was, it made my eyes light up because sometimes I feel as Teton that we're a little bit ahead of the market, but then we hear stories like this and we say, okay, yeah, we're solving a problem. We see it coming. And it's, I'm glad that we're in the position that we're in and that we can provide value here now. I think a, a lot of the material companies that featured with solutions in your system 
are probably pretty excited about it just simply for that idea of qualifying solutions in there because there are now suddenly some really great performance materials but not a lot of opportunities to really uh, evaluate which to pick out of the the many options. Now, in 3D printing, there's still not as many options as injection molding, where you have thousands of grades of every type of material. So there's a lot more granularity and choice. But with the, the recent explosion, this is a huge benefit to identifying functional solutions. There was a note in the Smart Slice for Cura page that you know modern slicers have a staggering number of print parameters. <laughs> giving you nearly complete control over how a part is printed. So you have this as an option, but then you also have the challenge that really slicing optimization to the nth degree is considered kind of a dark art. It's a very steep learning curve, a lot of counterintuitive elements. In fact, one of the things that, you know, that Ultimaker has learned very happily from collaborating with material partners who are using tools that we, we provide for them to help them create print parameters to send to make it much easier for you know those using the machines to have a good first experience is that a lot of the choices that the um, polymer companies have made are counterintuitive and are not yeah. what we would expect it, even down to the chemistry of how polymers relax and that kind of thing. What has it been like stepping into this whole mess of processes and interdependencies and and provide a tool that, that bridges. It's been amazing. And I go back to the openness of the community as to why it's been so amazing. The willingness to work together to drive value to users, that's where it is. So there's a myriad of space of parameters. Luckily, we have technology now where we can start doing virtual DOEs, design of experiments, and understand what influences what. We can pick out the outliers of which have the greatest influence. Material suppliers, I'm sure they do this too, when they start tuning all of the various like chemical formulation slice parameters. You can just do a design of experiments and understand the biggest contributors, I would say, to the end product or the end goals. And that's what you can start tweaking. We have to build confidence. You want material suppliers to suggest something and you want Kira to suggest something to say, this is what we would do, right? Because there's a level of just safe there. And it's the same thing with smart size. We're not telling you what the answer is. We're telling you a list of suggested answers to say, this is the direction that will probably yield in the highest success of what you want to do. So a lot of it is just confidence building at that point. So going going back, you know, to the question about challenges of navigating space or how has it been? It's just I, I look at it like a fun problem that the community is solving together. And when you're doing those types of exercises, usually they end in success, which I have a high degree in confidence that will be the end state of this. We'll return to learn more about the core technology at work under the hood in Smart Slice for Ultimaker Cura when we get back. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. Talking Additive is pleased to announce that our team will be participating in the first ever Ultimaker Transformation Summit on April 20th to 23rd. Unlock the magic of transformative innovation at the Ultimaker Transformation Summit and be inspired by the industry leaders making it happen. 
Talking Additive will not have an episode that week because I and my fellow Talking Additive producers will be presenting the conference taking place within this virtual open house environment. To experience the technology of tomorrow today and to spend time with the Talking Additive team live in chat and on screen, register for your spot soon. You can sign up at 3d.ultimaker.com forward slash summit. Ultimaker staff from around the world will be joining for the event, which will kick off with a special presentation by our guest from episode 21, CEO Jurgen von Hollen. You can also hear Doug Kennick, guest of this episode, in conversation with Tiago Medeiros from Ultimaker Material Partner Levos Group in the fourth session of the conference presented by the Talking Additive team. Transform advanced use cases with Ultimaker ecosystem partners. Enjoy Talking Additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. We will now return to our interview with Doug Kennick, VP of Product for Teton Simulation. How would you describe the core technology that you're drawing on to be able to do this work? Yeah, so the, the core technology of Smart Slice is something called finite element analysis. That's a weird mechanical engineering term. Uh, I can, I'll boil it down as much as I can, but it's basically a virtual simulation. So if you were to go test a component, like hang a weight from it, it's basically virtually doing that, right? So it relies on math and some sort of a representation of that geometry, whatever that representation is, to tell you how that part will behave. Finite element analysis is been deeply ingrained in a whole bunch of different industries. And we've basically taken that concept and tailored it specifically for extrusion-based processes. So now we can accurately describe the as-printed geometry, and now we understand how it behaves in a virtual test, and in, we can do that in seconds which I think is probably the most powerful aspect of our, one of the most powerful aspects of our technology is it is so fast. It gives you answers literally anywhere from 30 seconds to minutes, which is way less than a print time, right? Because in general, let's say that you were gonna go virtually simulate something and it took just as long to do that as it would to print and test it physically. There's no reason to run to run the virtual simulation, it, it, but it's true, right? Why would you want a computer telling you what it thinks the answer is going to be when you know the answer? So being able to quickly iterate in your software package of, of choice, like in Cura, that's powerful. So that's the core, really. And there's a whole bunch of IP entangled in there that we really can't talk about, but that's that. And then what we've also done, I'd say a really good job of is wrapping optimization algorithms around it. However you want to describe an optimization algorithm. Some people call them machine learning things, which maybe they are. Otherwise you can talk, call them like Monte Carlo simulations or something like that. We've built an optimization engine that wraps around that finite element solver that basically you can think of it as like, just assume some sort of crazy surface. It basically just crawls around the surface and when it finds a point on that surface that satisfies what you need. And with a combination of all these different slice parameters, it tells you these slice parameters, like they provide a result which you had requested. And then it continues crawling until it finds a different point. And it says, oh, this one does too, right? Because this isn't like a, I mean, 
And if you crawled around forever on that surface, you would eventually find the point that is the exact best solution for what it knows about. And that's, that's an interesting thing because a computer only knows so much, right? Like you as an engineer or a manufacturing engineer, you have different requirements. Like maybe there's like a center of mass requirement, or maybe there's like a thermal thing. The computer doesn't understand all of it. And what we're trying to do is when we built this optimization engine is tell you, Hey, we found this point. It meets what we know that you need. You decide what you want to do with it. And we'll give you like 10 of those points. And then you as, as an engineer, or even as a designer, you get to decide you know, what you think is the best. So again, like we go back to suggestions. So there are new features that have rolled out with the new version. It seems like it would be good to cover some of those things because I don't know how many of the listeners have had a chance to take a look at this yet. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll start by reiterating what the intent of the software is and then what we heard from customers and how we met those criteria. First and foremost, again, confidence. We just want to provide valuable information. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Is the as printed part going to behave the way that you intend it to? And then secondly, we want to be able to optimize slice parameters to tell you to meet those criteria, right? By minimizing print time and material usage. That's what we're all about right now. And as we were talking to our customers and potential customers, we found that there were a lot of open questions. For example, let's say I optimize a component and your solution comes back and tells me that there is no feasible way that I can print this thing and it will behave as, as I wanted it to. This is a very real scenario, right? Like some parts just, it doesn't matter. You can print them solid. They will not behave the way that you intended them to or that you want. That's okay. But then the question is, what do I do? <laughs> it's like, I, I, obviously I need to modify the geometry or I can change the material, right? And this is what we've been talking about is you can now virtually like qualify materials within the software. So we added a whole bunch of materials to the materials database, high performance materials. So now users can actually go virtually qualify materials from a host of material suppliers that are all hosted on the marketplace, by the way, in the Cura marketplace, which is great. Cause all you have to do is just go download these materials and run them and it'll tell you how they perform. Um, and we'll, and now we also can tell you as a user where in the geometry, something's going wrong. And that's really impactful because now we can come back, we can highlight a region of the geometry in this new release. And we can tell you this portion of the geometry is causing you the issues. You need to modify your geometry right here. And this goes back to this idea of design for additive manufacturing. A lot of people call it DFAM. I, for extrusion-based processes, that's a very difficult thing to do unless you have the sliced part in front of you. And once you get the sliced part in front of you and the as printed behavior, DFAM becomes a very real thing. And that's the step that we've taken more from the manufacturing side, where now we're indicating to you, change this portion of the geometry, you can slice it the same way, you're probably gonna see better results. So that's like the thing I am most excited about with this new release. Now we've also added what I would call like a sanity check. So it's funny because users, you set up a problem in smart slice and there's this whole idea of a use case, which is what is happening in service, right? Like where am I fixing the structure in space? How am I pushing or pulling on it? It's not always hundred percent intuitive. There's a little bit of thinking that has to go into it, but then let's say you set it up and you run it. The question is, 
is it moving the way I thought it was going to move? I don't know. So, so we've added this, what I would call sanity check, where you run one of these validations and then you can ask it, hey, how does this thing move? And it'll plot on the part. It'll show you how the part moves. And then you can say, yep, that's exactly what it does in service. Let's go optimize this component because now I'm confident that I have this problem set up the way that it should be set up. So I'd say those are the things that I'm most excited about. We received some really good feedback from the customer base on it. When I head back to the origin of Smart Slice for Ultimaker Cura, so what drew you as a team to developing for Ultimaker Cura as a platform? Yeah, so this is a really interesting story. We actually started out developing our own web-based slicer. And the reason that we were doing it is because we needed somewhere to showcase our technology. It, we, we really hadn't explored the realm of slicers at this point. We didn't know what was completely out there. We just knew that we needed something to demonstrate our technology in. We quickly found out that there are a lot of slicers on the market and everyone has their slicer of choice. So breaking in with a new slicer, saying it's gonna solve all your problems, it's just, it's a non-starter, right? So that we shelved that and said, we'll revisit that at some later date. But I was wandering around a um, AMUG conference in Chicago, I think it was like three years ago. And I went to this session and um, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of Paul Hyden. He used to be your VP of, of product management or product at Ultimaker. He actually sits on our board right now. He's an amazing person. If you don't know Paul, you should definitely look him up on LinkedIn. He's an interesting guy. He was chairing a session on materials in, at AMUG. And this was probably one of the most heated discussions I've ever seen at an additive conference. And, and for those of you who haven't gotten into the whole open versus closed ecosystem materials discussion yet, you need to go sit in on one of these discussions because it just, like, there, it's not really, I sit in the middle camp present. It's very bifurcated. So Paul was, was chairing this and he was doing a great job moderating it. And I went up to Paul afterwards and I told him what we were working on. And he said, sounds extremely interesting. Here's my email address. Give me a ring. So I, I we reached out to Paul and we scheduled some time with him. And uh, Roger is the product manager for Cura and showed them what we were up to in that web-based slicer. And they said, this is exactly what we were looking for. We want you guys to integrate this into Cura. So that was the start of it. And then we started looking at it more. And one of the great things about Ultimaker is your open source. So it's very easy to work with Cura. And it was very easy to get the product off the ground because the partnership, it was great that the partnership was moving forward and everyone was interested. We actually, Brady and I flew out to the Netherlands and visited the company and had a discussion with everyone, which was amazing. Great place. And your, your new office is amazing, by the way. So we went out there and talked with everyone. We started developing in Cura because we didn't have to wait for a formal partnership. We could say, let's get this thing off the ground as fast as possible. And for a startup, time is everything. So it was hugely advantageous for us to move forward with that. I was at that AMUG session. I, I remember that very, very well. And I, I had, for example, a couple of the, the people who were speaking there have now been on Talking Additive, including Haley Ann Friedman, who uh -huh. threw, threw a pretty big gauntlet down in the middle of that with her basically saying, yeah, closed source, that seems really weak and like a very bad decision. <laughs> that was pretty <laughs> great. I'm really glad that that struck a chord and got you interested. Fast forwarding to now, you not only have the solution developed to be deployed through Ultimaker Cura 
but you can benefit from a huge list of material alliance partners who are aggressively bringing these composite materials in. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you approach materials, and especially with your you know, huge background in thinking about composites of every sort, looking at what's happening in the FFS space now during these still wild pioneering days? The materials ecosystem right now is... I look at it like a like a plasma almost like it's just continually morphing and it's so interesting. We can actually draw a lot of corollaries back to injection molding, believe it or not, where the hardware outpaces everything. And as soon as the hardware starts to become not solidified, repeatable enough to give you a good answer or a good solution, which we're at, like definitely, but we're at uh, materials start to catch up and we're seeing this where you start to introduce all of these different materials and materials start evolving. You start generating a whole bunch of like new materials with structural applications because now we're starting to get into the structural side of this. And then software, I, I don't say it lags behind, but it's always the last to the party. It comes in and says, okay, it, this is about efficiency at the end of the day. And working with these material suppliers and like how we approach it, it comes back to the openness of the community I can't tell you how amazing it is to work with these material suppliers. Like you don't even have to go through like a courting, pro I'll call it a court, put that in air quotes, like a courting process, right? You, there's no such thing. You talk with each other, you say what you're doing, what you're up to. And they say, absolutely, we're gonna ship you some material test it and try it out. And we just test it for them. So they give us a list of, this is how we would print it. And this is our recommended print profile in Cura. So we print it that way. And then we put it in a tensile machine and we generate data and we ship that data with the software product. And it's accessible for users. The data means something special to us because we reverse engineer it so that we can cross a myriad of slicing parameters, but users have access to it. We didn't really have to have a strategy with material suppliers, which I found extremely interesting from like previous life experiences. It's been more of just how do we push this together forward? On our website, we have some great case studies with BASF and also Polymaker that we released probably like a month and a half ago. I would recommend you check them out as listeners just about how good these materials are. And by good, I mean stiff and strong. The amount of innovation that have gone into some of these materials for structural application is mind boggling. Like how much you introduce like fibers to these things, how much stiffness and strength you can drive out of an FFF component. It's insane. Like matching aluminum, insane, which is, that's very powerful. You'll also see coming up in the uh, virtual open house a discussion with another material supplier where we've done some other work where you'll see this highlighted as well. It's so great to see how we can innovate with material and hardware to push into these industrial applications and software is just there to make it that much better. Speaking of the jigs and fixtures and manufacturing aid space, it's been interesting talking with a lot of customers who, uh, particularly in like context, like automation context, like packaging, et cetera, they have found that by really understanding these materials and learning how to work with them, they can replace aluminum and steel parts all the time. And the new polymer ones, they, they may not look like very fancy parts, but they outperform the original parts, or at least in the case of, of some of the things, you don't necessarily need everything to be a steel part for as far as the, the energy <laughs> taken from the world to make that part. So, so that has been quite a transformation. 
Yeah. It comes back to advanced materials and it touches on the education aspect. And then it also touches on something that's really interesting. We'll probably dive into this later, which is a digital warehouse and what I would call distributed manufacturing, which there's a couple aspects here on these assembly lines. Time down on an assembly line that equates to however many dollars that you want to say it equates to, depending on your industry or your company, but a lot. And if you can print something and get your line up and running that much faster, there's a huge business proposition there. And so additive in general has a huge benefit to these companies. And Smart Slice has an added, I would call it, benefit to these companies where we can increase the efficiency or reduce the time, which equates again to the dollars saved. So I think that's really interesting. And then when we start talking about distributed manufacturing where you don't have overhead of storing components anymore, you can pull what I would call like a qualified file and print it at your site when you need it. The business impacts to that are just mind-boggling, right? Yeah. Looking at some of the examples on your site and some of the case studies have, have come up and you, you see a tendency where there, there'll be a result that takes you know a, a fraction more time to produce than like a kind of a basic quick draft version of something. But because of the slicing has been optimized for, for the needs for that part, the performance actually might match or exceed some of the knee-jerk kind of overcompensation approaches mm -hmm. like printing in 100% infill, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Just because oh, yeah. you're scared it's going to break, so you're just going to mm -hmm. print the hell out of it, and you're going to add like a couple of days to that print. Talk to uh, Talking Additive listeners about how this process works to get you to that optimized part. It's really about automation at the end of the day, but so there are kind of two words that I, I keep repeating, but confidence and automation. In Cura, you can just pose the question, this is what I need from a stiffness and a strength component. And the software just quickly tells you thumbs up, thumbs down, the way that you've designed it, the slicing parameters that you have, the material that you've chosen, the orientation on the build plate, like we can keep going, but it'll quickly give you, yep, yeah, yes or no. And it'll tell you why, and it will provide suggestions as to what you should do. That's step one, that's the whole confidence aspect of it. And then step two would say, help me. And so you click the optimize button or the help me button and it says, okay, I'm going to go help you. And it will go out and explore that surface. It will crawl around that surface that I was talking about previously, trying to find the best suited slicing parameters to meet what you had requested of it while minimizing print time and material usage. And it'll come back and say, this is what I recommend. And not just one, like 10, right? And there's a whole bunch of value here when we start talking about, let's just go back to the assembly line example, or even just a single component example, when you need to get something up and running where you're right, like either a you're iterating. So you'll print something, it'll break. These are that print break cycles that we're talking about. Well, let's just say you do it five times. How much time have you wasted in that? You've wasted at least the print time plus the time putting it into service and it breaking, and then you redesigning it. Whereas if you can do it once with our software or twice, let's call it with our software, you've saved 50% at least of the time required to get that assembly line back up and going or print that component for structural application, which has a large business application and business value to it, as well as the whole confidence aspect of it. So that's one. And then the other that we see quite often is what you had mentioned where users, if there's a structural application, users will just say, I'm going to print this thing solid. I don't want to mess with it. 
I like it is the best that I can possibly do. It's the stiffest and the strongest. And you are right. It is the stiffest and strongest part for that geometry that you could create. Um, besides if you swap material or maybe material orientations or something like that. But yeah, we see this often. But our software will actually go in and tell you this is over-designed. It, it'll tell you that. It'll say it's over-designed. Do you want us, again, to optimize the slice parameters so that we can meet these requirements? It will go in and do it. And what we've typically seen is a reduction of anywhere from 30 to 50% in print time for a single component. So the single component is massive in itself, but when you have to print 40 of those, the time savings and the business value is just, it, it's so great. So it's like we're compounding the benefits that additive provides to these users and driving more value out of the process itself which I, I think is pretty interesting. I really like that. I, I, I like that. Do you want to cover any of the case studies? We don't have any like customer labeled case studies that we can share. There's a lot of confidentiality that's wrapped up in a whole bunch of that. But we can talk about the BASF case study um, or the Polymaker case study. I, I, I tend, I'll, I'll just go with the BASF one just because I have a lot more familiarity with it at this point. But basically, we had this challenge with BASF to design a brake lever. And it, those of you familiar with brake levers, like on your bike, there's a stiffness requirement, right? Because you don't want to mash down on the brake lever and it like moves. You don't want the component itself displacing because then you think you're braking and you're not braking. You're not pulling on anything, which isn't good. And then there's like a strength side of it where you, if you push, if you pull too hard, you don't want the brake lever to snap. So we were 3D printing this part and we had some requirements for it around stiffness and strength. And we started out with just, I will call it like a generic ABS material. And it, we came back with the ABS material and SmartSlice said, it doesn't matter how you print this component, you're not gonna be able to get the, the structural response that you need out of it, which that's okay. I mean, it's just a material at the end of the day and we can start looking at other materials. And that's when BASF came in and they said, why don't you try this carbon reinforced material that we've been working on and we'll, sh we'll highlight what we can do with it. And this material is super stiff and super strong. So we put it into the system and it was basically over-designed. You could print it solid, it would work. You could print it like, I mean, with like 40% infill, it would probably work. It was, it was crazy. So, so the question is like, can I optimize this thing to get the most structural performance out of it with the minimum material use and print time. We went through that exercise with SmartSlice and came up with an optimized component. And then we actually printed all of them and BASF tested them. So they actually hooked up like an experimental <clears throat> test rig and started pushing and pulling on these things. And then we blindly ran SmartSlice while they were printing and testing and correlated the results. And it was great. I think we were within like 10% on stiffness. And then the strength values we could get, I think we were really close on the strength values as well. But from the stiffness driving side, it was, we were really happy with the results. I think BASF was too. They wrote a, a white paper on it. It's hosted on their website. Luckily they allowed us to show it on our website too. BASF's great to work with, by the way. Yeah, from like an engineering aspect side of it, that highlights what we're capable of doing. And then there's also the business side of it where We've been, like I indicated, we've been working with customers, things like jigs and fixtures on assembly lines where we can reduce print time anywhere from 30 to 50%. And the business implications of that are just 
they're really big. Uh, so our, I think the customer base has been pretty satisfied so far. You had mentioned listening to episode 13 of Talking mm-hmm. Additive and hearing Yob talk about some of the, the projects at Eric's and some of the approaches that they now have to the larger life cycle of industrial parts. One thing that he brought up that I thought was quite interesting is that they're now pushing for when their customers are making the industrial parts that may someday be the kind of thing that they need to help them solve problems with. They're actually saying, why don't you design this part from the beginning to be suitable to additive manufacturing? Reason being that you can print it in the lead up to being confident that it's time to do a lot of them. But also at the end of the process, when you're done doing mass uh, production of that part, you want to be able to get them when you need it and and not have a, a you know a redesign. And that was really illuminating to me because that's from a certain perspective, you might think that they would just, they love the fact that manufacturers keep putting themselves in those binds of not being able to supply those parts later. But their argument is, no, we're part of this, you know, the, the parts themselves are changing. Like the nature of what, what you're going to produce is changing. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that from a Smart Slice and a Teton Sim perspective? That part of episode 13, that was probably what struck me the most is just understanding the life cycles now of the components and how we can actually leverage additive as a new, I'll call it a cog in the manufacturing wheel where it becomes an integral part. Absolutely amazing. And Smart Slice plays a huge role there, right? Now we can virtually validate the components on the additive side right away and say, yeah, these are good to go from an engineering perspective. You can manufacture them with additive. They're going to perform as expected. And you've basically qualified the part material and hardware, and you can put a stamp on a a digital file and say, these are good to go. I I totally see in the future Smart Slice working in that context where we are helping to like version control and make sure that these parts are qualified as they're distributed to the user base. If we look at it through a manufacturing lens, distributed manufacturing, I think we we brought that up earlier. That's a real thing and it should be considered heavily. So like I have a friend who owns a body shop in Northern Wyoming and the lead time on parts, like you're taught, you don't want your car in the shop that long. Like what if in the future we were able to on-demand print a component for your car through a digital warehouse that your OEM has marked as good and your car's back to you in the same day. Like these, I start, my mind starts going crazy. This is what I think about, but these are the possibilities that digital unlocks for us. What are some challenges that you would like to see FFF as a technology tackling in the, the near and distant future? From the process itself, I think we've gone a long ways on repeatability. Really interested to make sure that we continue working on that problem. I think that comes back to the whole confidence aspect and trust aspect of this, which I, th- I think we've, we're really good about it with a single machine. Like it, the repeatability on a machine is really good. I'm more interested in like cross machines that if you have distributed manufacturing, what, what you get out of one, you want out of every other one. So some of that might be like hardware innovation. Some of that might be software innovations, to be quite honest with you. You could have like live print monitoring, you can have data collection, you can have a whole bunch of other stuff that are going on. So I'd really like to see some of that be broached. And then FFF in general, just continue to drive into production level components. There's so much room there 
for FFF to grow. And this goes again with confidence and trust, but as that continues to evolve and as materials evolve, I really would like to see FFF go into like mainstream production level components and not even low volume. I think there's opportunity there for higher volume. And we start, we're starting to see some companies drive towards that direction. So more innovation in that area would be just awesome. And I, I think that it can have such a large impact and disrupt a lot of traditional processes out in the market today. So Doug, where can a user who's interested check out uh, Smart Slice for Cura? Smart Slice is actually in the Cura marketplace, uh, both in base Cura and Cura Enterprise, which is packaged with uh, Ultimaker Essentials. So you can download it via the marketplace and you can register for a free trial directly in product. It, it will prompt you for a, a user login and password, but there's a hyperlink embedded in the login screen where you can request a free trial. And we hand out 14 day free trials for you to try it as needed. It comes packaged with tutorials. And like I had mentioned previously, we, we know when something's up and that you're having issues. So if you are running a job and you're having problems or you're getting started, we'll proactively reach out to you to make sure that we can get you on your feet as fast as possible. And with that, I wanted to thank you for coming and, and joining us and talking out of today. This has been an illuminating discussion of a tool that is already by participating in this ecosystem, I think really contributing to, to how some of these problems are addressed and resolved. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I really appreciate you having me on. It's been, again, a very interesting discussion and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed our 22nd episode for the Talking Additive podcast, optimizing Ultimaker Cura slicing for function, Doug Kenick, VP of product, Teton Simulation. Stick around after the theme music for our Ultimaker Innovators Spotlight featuring Tom Gray of Make48, a nationwide 48-hour invention competition, also a documentary airing on PBS in the USA. And as a reminder, make sure to register now to attend the Ultimaker Transformation Summit on April 20th to 23rd, where you have the opportunity to see CEO Jürgen von Hollen announce to the world his vision for the new era for Ultimaker, and also catch the conference program produced by the Talking Additive team that includes past Talking Additive guests such as Doug Kennick from Teton Sim, Terri-Anne de la Cruz, and Jeremy Avers from Ultimaker, the Levos Group, and Tobias Rottlemeyer from BASF. Unlock the magic of transformative innovation at the Ultimaker Transformation Summit and be inspired by the industry leaders making it happen. Sign up at 3d.ultimaker.com forward slash summit. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. In three weeks, special one week delay, on April 27th, we will return with episode 23, featuring the dynamic educator Caroline Keep, director of Spark Pinketh, and co-founder of Liverpool Makefest. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thank you again to Doug Kennick, Keith Ozar, and the rest of the Teton Simulations team for their help and support with episode 22. Our series producer is Hanna Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. Psst.
Wait, don't leave now. In Talking Additive episode 18, we introduced a recent project that is near and dear to our hearts, the Ultimaker Innovators List. If you haven't yet had a chance to explore this online project, head over to ultimaker.com forward slash innovators to see the list that we unveiled on December 15th, 2020. This project will be an ongoing Ultimaker-wide effort to put the spotlight on individuals or groups across the world who we believe are using 3D printing to transform the way people work, think, and live. Throughout the year, we will return to this list to highlight more of these Ultimaker Innovators interviews as we advance our way towards the launch of our 2021 Innovators list at the end of the year. Today, our Innovator Spotlight falls upon Tom Gray and Make48, a nationwide 48-hour invention competition and documentary series that airs on PBS across the United States. These competitions make use of a variety of tools, materials, and workspaces, among them 3D printers, and this project has done much to highlight the value of 3D printing technology as a ready-at-hand tool for invention. From early concepts to technical studies to mock-ups to ergonomic tests to stages of manufacturing, all the way from proof of concept through to replacement parts. Without further ado, Tom Gray. My name is Tom Gray, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Make48. It's simply a 48-hour invention competition where we challenge teams to build a physical prototype using the technologies available at a makerspace and very talented tool techs to help them build whatever they can think of. My first uh, encounter with 3D printing was before Make48. I used to be in the product development world. I would license inventions, usually low technology stuff. You're talking gardening, kitchen items, that kind of thing. And very much the rapid prototyping. Inventors would bring me half-baked ideas that they were shelf-ready, but not quite shelf-ready. And as you know, when you launch a new product, that's when you find faults with anything. And instead of us going back the old-fashioned way and tooling up and doing it that expensive concept, we started to do some 3D printing using a couple of companies that I'd known who were professionals in the industry. In my opinion, innovation is improving on something that usually is already existing. It's a very broad word that could go across a number of things. Innovation to me is very different than the word invention, where invention to me feels like you've got to create something brand new that doesn't exist. And that's very confusing for a lot of people and very daunting to think that you've got to invent something new. Innovation is, here's a coffee cup. We want to improve it. We want to improve the design, the consumer experience and something like that. So in my opinion, it's all about improving other items that already exist and making them better for the world. First and foremost, Matt, I'm not a maker myself. I'm on the other side of the whole spectrum. I'm part of the everyday consumer that has ideas but does not know how to physically or even digitally make them a reality. Yeah, that's where Make48 really blossomed with Rich, Kurt, Bob, and myself was that let's teach people how to get that idea out of their head and into their hands and show them the processes that are available, whether it's CAD design work, whether it's digital fabrication, old-fashioned making, whether wood or metal. And during the events, we have these challenges and criteria. So we don't tell the, the contestants what they have to build. It's here's a problem within this industry, and how would you solve it? And here's the, the things we want you to see at the end of the day. And sure enough, we have nine 3D printers available to use. Yeah, just the ones that we bring to the competition, let alone the ones that the makerspace may have. But that first initial prototyping and testing 
has to be usually be a 3D printer. You don't want to weld something up. You don't want to be doing massive woodworking or even CNC routing early in the game because you sort of want to test your product. And what we find is the, the, the 3D printing and the quality of those 3D printers improving year after year meaning a faster result. And when you've got 48 hours, you've been to one of these, Matt, there's not much time for error. You want to test and fail quickly, and that's why 3D printing is such a big factor for what we do. And the 3D printers will often be running within six hours of a competition without any other machines operating. That's the thing that people go to the first. And our first event was, uh, I think, 2015, uh, and it was at the Union Station in Kansas City. And that event, it wasn't filmed back then for television. So it was a real cowboy-type event, a lot of fun. Safety wasn't a big issue. It was really backyard and it was a really good event. I think three competitions later, we went to the Smithsonian Museum and did one there. That's where we filmed a bit of a pilot, and after that got picked up and made into a major documentary, which is what we are today. Moving forward and with the COVID issues, we are obviously planning a long ways ahead. We know that there's no big events happening next year, for example. So we have actually got a 10-city series going to be beginning in June of 2021, and that'll go for six months. And the winning team from every city will then advance to be on season five for the PBS show in March of 2022. So we're really lifting the game. We want to include a lot more people into the competitions. Yeah, the big benefit we're also doing is that we've got some new guidelines to pick the teams coming up. It includes a 50% female ratio, 30% from underserved areas, and 30% of race diversity. So that's going obviously down really well with our cities because as you probably know, these competitions like FIRST Robotics and all these great competitions in STEM, which we sort of are in that same category, it's often the very kids that had the privilege of getting the access to this equipment. There are so many people out there who have never had the chance to do this. And that's where we come in and allow anyone and everyone to compete because they're not building. They're not having to learn how to operate equipment. They have to just simply collaborate work with the makers, work with the tool techs, and have this maker space full of equipment to build whatever they can dream of. Yeah, our future is exciting for that reason. And we want to just be a lot more inclusive of everyday people to get involved in innovation. Thank you very much for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.